0: You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So like Adam said, my name is Tracy, and I'm going to bring the Bible reading this afternoon. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And there are Bibles in the aisles you can find or will be up behind me. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins
1: Thank you, Tracy. Please have uh, Ephesians 2 open. Uh, There's a bit of an outline of my talk uh, on the welcome card that Adam referenced earlier. So if that's useful for you, you can follow along with that. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, please help me to be faithful and clear this afternoon. And we pray that you would take up your word by the power of your spirit. Uh, Please, Father, uh, grip our hearts and minds afresh Uh, with the wonder of your grace to us in Jesus, your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Nearly 250 years ago now, uh, John Newton wrote those famous words. I'm sure you've heard them, even if you kind of, this is the first day you've ever been to church in your life and you know very little about Christianity. You've probably heard these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now those words really bring us to the kind of the central and in some ways most offensive idea of Christianity. I say offensive because uh, as Christians we believe uh, not uh, that in our spiritual state uh, apart from God's grace to us in Jesus uh, is kind of so bad that we didn't just need to be led or coached or taught or encouraged. We needed to be saved. We needed to be liberated. We needed to be rescued. That's different to what some other systems of spirituality and religion say. We believe as Christians uh, that Jesus is not just our spiritual guru. He's not just our advisor. Uh, He's not just our teacher or even just our prophet. Jesus is not even just our Lord and King. Jesus is our saviour. Jesus had to come and rescue us. He had to save us in his abundant grace. But what does that mean? What what was John Newton kind of reflecting on when he said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. That's what we're exploring today from Ephesians chapter 2, saved by grace. What does that mean? Uh, If you take a look at the passage, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, uh, you might notice that it could be divided up into three different sections. I'm saying verses 1 to 3 uh, describes the life that we've been saved from by God's grace. Uh, Verses 8 to 10 describe the life that we've been saved for by God's grace. And the verses in the middle, uh, verses 4 to 7, show exactly how God has saved us from this life and for that life. So hopefully that's clear. Uh, let, let's take a look first at verses 1 to 3. This is the life that we've been saved from. Uh, take a look at verse 1. Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, uh, in which you used to live when you followed the ways, uh, the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, uh, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also uh, were, (coughs) excuse me, uh, all of us also uh, were among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh uh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, uh, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? Deserving of wrath, death. It's a pretty intense, it's a kind of bleak but accurate and comprehensive picture of our spiritual state apart from knowing God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. The key idea there is right up front in verse 1. Paul says that in our transgressions and sins we were dead. The consequence of sin from the very beginning, God said to Adam and Eve back in the garden, What did he say? If you choose to rule your own life rather than humbly surrendering to my rule, what will happen? You will surely die. The consequence of shaking your fist at the God who is the source of life has always been death. Paul's saying here, in our transgressions and sins, we were spiritually dead. It's a pretty gra- graphic word, that word dead. Some of you are health professionals. and You might have heard or used terms like necrosis or necrotic. It comes from the Greek word here in this passage. It's necros what's paul saying he's saying apart from god's grace to us in the lord jesus christ we were like a, a rotting lifeless lifeless corpse that's kind of how dead we were no hope of giving ourselves spiritual life you might say oh well, what do you mean by in my transgressions and sin i'm not a sinner i mean sure yeah, no one's perfect I'll accept that, but I'm not as bad as, you know, my neighbour or something. So that surely makes me not a sinner. What does Paul mean by sin or transgressions and sin? I think he means uh, that none of us are born spiritually free. All of us are enslaved or controlled by at least three things that he picks up in this passage. You'll see three times he uses the word followed. He says we used to follow the ways of the world. We followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And third, we followed the uh, desires, the cravings of what he calls our flesh. And that word followed is not kind of like, hey, I freely choose to follow the Melbourne Football Club, right? It's not that sort of following. Uh, It's following because you couldn't possibly do anything else. You're bound to follow. You're kind of constrained to follow. It's a picture of being enslaved and controlled by three things. Those three things, so Paul's saying, uh, spiritually speaking, apart from knowing Jesus, uh, we're controlled by the ways of the world around us. Just kind of blindly, ignorantly go with the flow of culture, having little to no idea how the values, the priorities, the ethics of the world around us are shaping us each and every day. That's what Paul's saying. You followed in the ways of the world a second you followed paul says in the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air Uh, it's a way of describing satan the devil uh, the evil supernatural power behind many of the much of the sin and idolatry in our world now we don't have time to unpack all the details of those first two things i'm happy to talk about it with you over supper Uh, i wanted to dwell today particularly on the third thing where in verse 3 paul says we're enslaved we're controlled Uh, by the cravings, the desires and thoughts of our flesh. Now, You you might read that and think, well, does this mean that God is kind of against our bodies? He doesn't like our physical flesh? Well, no. If you were with us earlier in the year, we did the kind of God's good design series. We saw from Genesis 1 and 2, God made our bodies. He loves our bodies. He declared our bodies to be very, very good. So flesh here isn't kind of that God's down on our physical bodies. It's what is sometimes translated in the Bible as our sinful nature. And I want to suggest that the essence of our sinful nature is self-centeredness. The default settings of the human heart, apart from God's grace, are deeply and profoundly self-centered. You might think, well, that's a little bit of a, a negative take on human nature. I don't know about you, like uh, Gabby and I have three children, uh, Ada, Charlie and Felix. Uh, we've been given a lot of books over the years. Uh, I've got to say, we've never been given any books to teach our kids how to snatch. Like that just, they seem to get that naturally. Or any books to teach them to look to their own interests first. Like when there's three bits of cake and there's one that's bigger than the others, it just comes naturally for them to take the biggest one. Right, what We have we have been given books about the importance of sharing and taking turns. But why is it? Because the default settings of the human heart are profoundly self-centred. That's not just my kids, I'm not just picking on them. Like, I see this, even though I'm a Christian, I know God's grace in Jesus, I'm still thoroughly self-centred from time to time. Or every day, I don't know. I see this self-centeredness when I know I kind of should put Gabby's interest before my own, but it's just so frustrating to do that. I see it even the last couple of nights where I've finally, you know, lied down in bed and every so often Felix comes and wakes us up with a bad dream. And instead of being full of compassion for him, all I can think about is the sleep that I'm missing out on. You know? I see it when I'm sitting in a, a, a meeting and I'm so absorbed with my own perspectives and opinions on a particular issue, I just can't comprehend how anyone could see it differently. I'm blinded by my own self-centeredness, by my own ego. This is our sinful flesh that Paul's describing In verse 3, I'm sure you see some of this self-centeredness in your own life. And Paul's saying that before you become a Christian, the cravings of your self-centered ego kind of dominate your life in a particular way. It's almost like an addiction. You're kind of looking for the next hit of affirmation, of approval, of status, for someone to notice you. You know, you've had this experience, and when someone notices you or recognizes you or affirms you, it's like a hit of drugs to your ego. It feels great, you feel euphoric, and yet it doesn't last. You're enslaved to this constant treadmill of looking to feed the bottomless pit of your own ego, as it were. At least that's what it's like for me at times. And you might say, well, that's true of particularly bad and ugly people. And it is. Like throughout history, uh, some of the most self-centred people have been some of the most horrible people. Megalomaniacs, tyrants, despots, doing horrible things uh, because of their own self centeredness And yet it's also possible to be thoroughly self-centred and be a very good person. When you think about it, um, if life is all about you and you feeling good and other people liking you, What better way to do that than being very nice? If you can be a good and nice person and everyone thinks that, then life goes well for you. And so you help people and you care for people and you advocate and you campaign and you do all these different things, you protest, whatever it is you do, and it seems like you're being really selfless, (laughs) but you're actually serving yourself, you see? This is also true of very religious people. Uh, I probably used to be like this, but I I often fairly commonly sit down with, with someone and they're just so eager to tell me about everything they're doing to serve the Lord. All the service they're doing, all the sacrifices they're making, all the stands that they're taking for the Lord that other people should be taking if they took Jesus seriously. They seem really selfless, all about the Lord. And yet when something goes wrong in their life, they get bitter and angry at God and walk away. And it becomes apparent that they were just trying to use God to get stuff from him rather than selflessly serving God. You see, this self-centeredness manifests in different ways, in different kinds of people, in very bad people, very good people, very religious people. And as much as it might feel good to get what we want at times, uh, Paul's clear in verses 1 to 3 that this is a pretty miserable life. Uh, It's miserable for two main reasons. First, because it leads, as Paul says, to spiritual death. I touched on this earlier. God created us to live with him at the centre of our lives, like everything kind of revolving around him. Uh, So when we kind of put ourselves at the centre of everything, we cut ourselves off from the source of all life. Uh, we are, like one commentator has said, like a cut flower humanity. Uh, Felix at the moment, every time we go out for a run, uh, he always wants us to pick him some flowers. You know, he's always one about flowers. We pick the flowers. Uh, they look beautiful and alive and vibrant. We bring them home. We put them in the vase. They look great for a while, but then they wither away and die. That's what we're like as human beings apart from God's grace to us in Christ. We've cut ourselves off from the source of life, so we might look great, we might look beautiful, we might look alive and vibrant for a time, but sooner or later we wither away and die because the consequence of sin is spiritual death now and physical death later. This self-centred life is a miserable life. Uh, It's also miserable because of verse 3, it's a life that is deserving of God's wrath. Now, some of you read that. We finished kind of reading this. and You're like, that's, that's intense. Maybe some of you thought, I thought God was a God of love, not a God of wrath. And that's a good question to ask. I wonder, though, I don't know if you've had this experience, but often I would say my deepest feelings of frustration and anger... Are often directed to those who I love most deeply. Maybe you're different to me, but if I just don't care about someone, apathetic, I'm unlikely to be filled with anger or wrath. But if I deeply love my kids or I deeply love Gabby, if I see them doing something that I think is bad for them, destructive for them, dangerous for them, I'm filled with anger. How could you be so stupid? What are you doing? Now, God is righteous anger, not like my unrighteous anger, right? But you see the idea. God's anger towards us as human beings is actually an expression of his love. His deep love for you, for all of humanity, for his world. uh, That in our sin, we make decisions that are destructive for us, that are destructive towards one another and destructive for his world. So the life described, the life that we've been saved from in verses 1 to 3 is a miserable life, for it leads to spiritual and physical death and it is deserving of God's wrath. That's the life we've been saved from. What about the life we've been saved for? I'm kind of changing things up today. Let's go to the end of the passage, verses 8 to 10 uh three things i think it is yeah three things i want to draw out of verses eight to ten we won't kind of look at every detail the first thing uh, is that the life we've been saved for as christians is a life that is about grace from start to finish it begins with grace it's kind of sustained by grace it ends with grace look in uh, verse eight paul says for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith Uh, and this not uh, of yourselves it is the gift of God." think about how paul's described our spiritual condition in verses one to three a dead lifeless corpse the point is we could do absolutely nothing to save ourselves not through our own works not through our own efforts we couldn't resuscitate ourselves not through our own obedience our own sacrifice It must be 100% God's work. Sometimes we talk about God's grace, we kind of think, yeah, I need God's grace to get over the line. It's kind of like 80% my work, and then God's grace tops it off. No, 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 no. Paul's saying it's 100% God's grace. That's our salvation. 100% God's work, an undeserved gift that we receive simply by faith in the Lord Jesus, which is the next characteristic of this life. Verse 8, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. There are some people today uh, who might say that you can either be a faith person or a rational person. You can either be a um, superstitious person or a science person. Like, those are your two choices. Uh, So if you choose to be a faith person, you've got to check out your brain. All right, but that's not how the Bible describes faith. In the Bible, faith is a rational choice. A choice that you make to put your trust in Jesus, to depend on Jesus, because you have been persuaded by the evidence of who Jesus is and what he has done. Faith and reason aren't opposites. Faith is the rational choice to live your life in dependence upon Jesus. For you know he is your only hope to be made alive in him. Uh, So two things about this life. First, it's a life of faith, a life of grace rather, uh, which is to say that any goodness in you, any blessing uh, that that God might work through you is 100% a gift from God. Second, it's a life of faith in that as a Christian you now live your life uh, not primarily dependent on yourself and what you do, but primarily dependent upon Christ and what he does, which leads to the third thing, which is a life without boasting. Take a look in uh, verse 9. Paul says, this grace is the gift of God. Uh, Verse 9, it is not of works so that no one can boast. I think when we read the word boast there, we probably think about someone who's just kind of blatantly bragging. We may not think that this, therefore, we think, oh, I don't really fit into that category. I'd never think about doing that. But actually, the, the concept of boasting a little in the Bible is a little bit more subtle. Uh, if you think about um, ancient battles, for example, if you go home and read the story of David and Goliath... Uh, The Philistines and and Goliath would come out day after day and he would boast about how much greater uh, the Philistines were and he was than the armies of God. And this is what happened in ancient battles, right, that they would be faced with uh, the challenge of the battle ahead and their fears and anxieties on the inside and so they would look for things to boast in, things that would give them enough confidence to charge into battle. To say, hey, we've got iron chariots and they've got no chariots. Or we've got 8,000 soldiers and they've only got five. Remember that, fellas. It was typically fellas, although not always. Oh, we've got the greatest warrior king who's never been defeated. We can hang our hats on that. Right? They're faced with battles outside and anxieties and fears on the inside. And so they're looking for things to boast in. Things to give them confidence to keep on going and Paul knows that spiritually speaking apart from God's grace that is what all of us are like and we look at our lives and the challenges that we're facing we're conscious that we're struggling in this area over here or that area over there but we say to ourselves but at least I'm getting good marks at uni or at least I'm doing an okay job of being a mum Or at least my career's going okay. You know, my marriage is really struggling, but my career's okay. We're always looking for something to hang our hat on, something to to puff ourselves up just a little bit so that we can face the next day, the next challenge, the next battle. I've even seen this in my ministry, my service of God. You know, I found myself over the years uh, saying, well, you know, in that meeting I definitely could have been quicker to listen and slower to speak, or I made a mess of that pastoral situation or didn't handle it as well as I could have, but at least I can preach an okay sermon. That's something I can hang my hat on. That's something I can boast in. I'm sure we all have these areas in our life. It's usually the area where you take criticism the hardest. (laughs) That's what you're boasting in. The the stuff that you don't care about, uh, people can say what they like. But if there's something that's really important to you, whether it's your career or your marriage or being a good mum or whatever it is, if someone tramples on that, it cuts you to heart. That's probably what you're boasting in. And Paul says, when you're saved by grace, you're saved into a life in which you no longer boast. You can't even boast in your good works. Look at verse 10. Any good works that you do are just a result of God making you a new creation in Christ. Making you alive in Christ. So, the life that we're saved for is a life in which no one can boast. The life of looking for something to boast in is incredibly exhausting, isn't it? Take the example of my sermons. I might preach sometimes an okay sermon on one week, but then there's next Sunday. You're like, oh, I justified my existence last Sunday. That's what I'm boasting in. But then I've got to go again. You get good marks in one semester but then you've got to go again. And so you're on this constant treadmill of looking for something to boast in. Paul says God frees us from all that into a life that is free of boasting. And he does it through the work that is described uh, in verses 4 to 7. Let me find uh, find where I'm at. So Paul's described the life uh, that we uh, we used to live, the life we've been saved from, and then in verse 4... In Christ Jesus. Uh, So again, Paul's reminding us if you go back and read later on his prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, he said, Remember, Christ wasn't only raised from the dead, he was exalted to God's right hand in heaven. He ascended. And of course, in Paul's day, uh, he's writing to the Ephesians who are familiar with kind of Greco Roman culture. Uh, They knew that if a Roman general went into battle, And had a great victory, kind of against all odds, when they came back to their city, they would ascend the steps of the palace and be seated at the right hand of the king. That was the position of greatest honour and glory. Uh, So Paul's like, this is obviously true, but he's also picking up this cultural image uh, and he's saying the Lord Jesus came into the world, uh, he fought a great battle, he had a victory against all odds at the cross, defeating Satan and sin and death uh, and now he's been raised from the dead and he's ascended to the right hand of God, the Father, the King over all creation where he is seated in the position of greatest glory and honour. That's what Paul's saying. And he's saying something more than that. He's saying that we as Christians, spiritually speaking, have taken the same journey as Christ. Because again, he's reinforcing that idea that when you put your faith in Christ, you see repeatedly in verses 4 to 7 that we are with Christ or in Christ. We're united with Christ by the power of his Spirit. What does that mean? It means that you died with Christ. In God's eyes, you died with Christ if you trust in Christ. So the penalty for your sin has been paid in full. The condemnation that your sin deserved has been borne in full by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You died with Christ. But you were also raised with Christ to live the life that we've just unpacked from verses 8 to 10. The life that's free from boasting. The life in which you no longer need to prove yourself to anybody. Why? Because you're seated in the position of greatest honour in Christ already. In Christ, you're seated in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God. And in Christ, God loves you and delights in you just as much as he loves and delights in Jesus, his son. Remember at Jesus' baptism. God the Father said from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. In Christ, at the right hand of God, your heavenly Father is well pleased with you. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone because you already have God the Father's approval. And you say, but maybe if I have a bad day tomorrow or next week, I can't be sure that I'm going to have God's approval forever. But look at verse 7. What was God's purpose in raising you up to seat you with Christ in the heavenly realms? Verse 7, it was so that in the coming ages he might show you the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. God's purpose in giving you new life in Christ and spiritually speaking raising you up to be seated with Christ was not primarily that you would serve him or that you would sacrifice for him, or that you would take a stand for him. His purpose, indeed, is that you would sit and rest in Christ and be showered with the incomparable riches of his love and grace and mercy for all eternity. That's what God wants for you. You are secure and seated in Christ so that God might show you the incomparable riches of his grace. So you could, uh, I mean, in some ways the key idea of being saved by grace is a great swap, a a substitution upon the cross. Christ sat, as it were, uh, in the seat of judgment and death uh, and condemnation, wrath that we deserve to sit in. And he did that so that we might sit in this different seat, (laughs) verse 7. Be seated at the right hand of God in a position of life and salvation and blessing, a seat that none of us deserve. So this is really how kind of change happens. Uh, If you want to know how do I leave behind the life described, the self-centred life in verses 1 to 3, well, the main way is by the selfless love of Christ, changing your heart all the more, gripping your heart, transforming your heart. Now, the more you understand Christ's selfless love for you shown at the cross, uh, the more the life, the self-centred life of verses 1 to 3 will just seem distasteful to you and you'll want to leave it behind. Uh, so what might a, a church look like? Remember that we're sort of doing this series, uh, Being the Church. What does it look like for us to be the church? Uh, so what might a church look like that understands really, really deeply that we've been saved by grace through faith in christ i want to suggest three things three characteristics if you like uh, the first characteristic is uh, i think that we'd be a really humble church ever growing in humility and maybe you've heard the phrase before uh, uh, but by the grace of god i would go that way too there's an old saying that's kind of verses one to three that's what keeps us humble isn't it like if you if you really believe that verses one to three uh describes you apart from god's grace then it's pretty hard to hold on to an idea that you're better than anyone else for very long right but believing verses one to three is a a description of your spiritual condition apart from christ will breathe in us as a church real and deep humility and I'm not saying that's not there at all, but I'm saying let's think about this more. We're just not as good as we think we are. None of us are. Uh, that ought to make us a really humble community. I think understanding that you're saved by grace also would make us a, a, an even more honest community. Like if you understand that in Christ you're approved of by God... You're secure in a position where you're going to be showered with God's love and grace and mercy forever. Like, if you understand that, there's a sense in which you don't have to pretend anymore. I'm not saying with every person who's a part of our church, but there really should be some relationships in which we feel that we can let our guard down a bit and be honest with one another. There's safety in the love and grace that we've found in the lord jesus christ so i think we'll be growing in humility uh, growing in honesty Uh, and third i reckon a church that understands that they've been saved by grace through faith in christ will be a church that is growing in a sense of deep spiritual restfulness now by that i don't actually mean that we'll never do any work Like in verse 10, Paul's pretty clear. God has made us alive in Christ, new creations in Christ, to do the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. So I take it that a church that understands they've been saved by grace is a church in which people are eager to do good works. And in chapter 3, we'll see that, that Paul is in prison for the good works that God prepared in advance for him to do. So clearly, sacrificing for the sake of those works is not a problem in his eyes. And yet, the internal spiritual posture is really important, isn't it? I was reflecting on my own life. Sometimes I reckon I've done good works from a posture, an internal posture of standing up, where I'm anxiously looking for the next opportunity to prove myself to God and others. And that's not the posture of someone who understands they've been saved by grace. The posture of someone who understands they've been saved by grace is seated in Christ resting in christ understanding that yes i'm doing these works but it's not about proving myself to god and others anymore because i'm secure in christ so you could be just as active on the outside but it's coming from a place of deep spiritual rest i wonder if that's a way in which our church could grow you know understanding of what it means to be saved by grace through faith in christ it's certainly a way in which i can grow Amazing grace, John Newton said, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Uh, Let's pray and then we're going to sing that song. Uh, Gracious Father, um, we thank you for this wonderful passage in your word. uh, and We pray that uh, our time together this afternoon has made it a little more clearer, a little more vivid and real uh, about what it means to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus, your son. Uh, In his name we pray. Amen.